Stuber, you don't get to preach today. It's my turn. Dude tried to tie me up. I don't know. Um, <clears throat> where is he? He's got no alibi. I mean, I... <clears throat> Morning. Let's try this. I'm glad that Pastor Eric's on vacation. How about you? <laughs> So if you've not been here before, uh, those are familiar words, um, not about Pastor Eric, um, but uh, <coughs> uh, he says, I'm excited to be here today. How about you? So <coughs> I want to talk today, well, first of all, pa Pastor Eric gave me like uh, two whole chapters to preach through. So fasten your seatbelts. Uh, <coughs> we've, we've got dinner at 530 with, yep, with my daughter and son-in-law, so so I just got to be there for that. Um, <coughs> I'm just being serious. So <coughs> in, uh, <coughs> on August 18th, 1871, <coughs> there was a small barn behind a typical home inside a, a larger city. <coughs> and it was a city where the buildings were mostly made of wood. And this, <coughs> this October was particularly dangerous within that city because there had been a summer-long drought and things were really, really dry. <clears throat> Compounding that, there were very heavy southwest winds and those southwest winds were, <clears throat> were going to spell disaster for this town. Now, we, we don't really know if it was Mrs. O'Leary's cow or not, but something in that barn triggered a fire that eventually burned an area that's about a little more than half the size of Maple Grove in a very dense urban setting. And there were about 100,000 different homes that were destroyed. There were <clears throat> 300 people killed. Um, speculation isn't just that it was Mrs. O'Leary's cow. Um, there, are, there are thoughts and allegations that there were some people gambling in the barn that night. And maybe, you know, smoking a cigar or whatever, and that torched the fire. Obviously, they're not Baptists. They're playing cards. Um, <clears throat> stick with me, people. <clears throat> but <clears throat> that fire, that fire uh, dramatically affected and changed the life of one person. The person's name was Horatio Spafford. Horatio Spafford was a really bright guy because he was a lawyer. And we all know that lawyers are really bright guys. Yeah, because that's what I do during the week. But um, um, he, was a, he was an attorney. He was married. He had a wife and five kids, four girls and a boy. And the boy was apparently the youngest. And at age two, that young boy was lost in the, in the Great Fire of Chicago. Most of Horatio Spafford's money came from real estate investments, and he owned a number of properties in Chicago that he rented out. He had pretty much stopped the practice of law. And, and so that was his deal. In that day and age in Chicago, the primary uh, material used for building homes was wood. And so <clears throat> dozens of his properties burned. So he not only lost a child in this in 1871, but he also lost pretty much his entire means of, of uh, income. 
So this is a very devastating loss for Horatio. And one thing that, uh, <clears throat> that they decided to do, his wife, they decided that they were going to go to Europe for a few years as things in Chicago were being rebuilt. And so he was going to leave the, the rebuilding process uh, to, to kind of underlings, to managers who were going to take care of that for him. And, but he was having issues with the zoning. This was two years later, this is 1873. And in 1873, there was a significant economic downturn in the U.S. In the 1800s, there were three different kind of almost depressions, 1833, 1853, 1873. So this is the third in a series. <clears throat> and here he is trying to rebuild and, and his, his real estate investments his means of livelihood, he is trying to rebuild all these things, piece together his life, his family's life, grieve the loss of his son. And what they decided to do was they decided they were going to go to Europe, get away, go visit old relatives or, or whatever. And they were all set to cross the Atlantic. And then he was running into issues with the zoning commission. Imagine that, problems with City Hall. So Horatio decided, said to his wife, why don't you and the girls go ahead, take this boat, I'll come later. And <clears throat> Horatio Spafford's wife and his daughters <clears throat> were on a boat, um, uh, the SS uh, Ville du Havre, um, French name, and they were crossing over and they, they were uh, struck by another ship. Um, I got the name of it, where is it? the Loch Urn, and, <clears throat> and the boat that they were on sank rapidly. So in the course of 24 months, this guy lost his son, lost all of his properties, and then lost his four daughters. He got a, he got a telegram from his wife after she was rescued, and it said, saved alone. Could you imagine being Horatio? Horatio was a, a follower of Christ. And <clears throat> he was a man of profound faith. But you got to sit there and you got to look back and you say, okay, I thought that stuff only happened to like Job in the Bible. Where, boom, your whole family's gone and, and everything that you own is wiped out. Doesn't that just happen to Job? Well, no, it, it happens in the 1800s, and it happens in the 1900s, and it happens in this new millennium. And <clears throat> like to think that being a follower of Christ would, would insulate you and protect you from tragic things happening. And so today, we're going to talk about tragedy and calamity and all the wheels coming off. And those kind of events it didn't just happen to Job. It happened to Horatio as well. Uh, <clears throat> 59 years ago, uh, my oldest brother was born. That doesn't tell you how old I am, but I was the youngest. And shortly after uh, my brother was born, my mom's parents came to her and said, we, we're going back to the farm. We're going back to the family farm in Nebraska, and we'd like you to come with us and bring Kevin. 
And my mom, <clears throat> my mom said, no, I, I really don't want to do that. And Kevin was only about seven or eight weeks old, a uh, <clears throat> little bit older than Betty Mae, a <laughs> little bit older. And, and my mom said, no, I don't want to go on this trip. And <clears throat> they stopped by on their way out of town, and, and they pleaded with her again, you know, you know, Charles can stay in town. You just come with us. And, and my mom said, no, I'm going to stay here with my husband, Charles. And, and I don't feel right about going. And as they left, my mom had a sense in her spirit that she wasn't going to see her parents ever again. And she actually went into their house, and she was crying. And about eight hours later, they were involved in a head-on collision, and they both died. That's tragedy. It happens. I was texting an old friend this week. Just texted and said, hey, haven't talked to you in a while. How you doing? Hope you're well. <clears throat> and she texted back and she said, actually, kind of my world has turned upside down. Because you see, on July 12th, my son took his own life. I had no idea. You know, we're Facebook friends, but I'm not on Facebook a whole lot. What do you say to that? Now, here are followers of Christ who have faith, who believe, who are serving in the kingdom, but tragedy still strikes. Well, today, we're going to look at Paul. Uh, the two chapters that I'm going to be reading through, I, I didn't bother with slides because it's two whole chapters, and the guy with the, you know, he'll, his, he'll sprain his finger doing that. Um, <clears throat> So I'm going to read through it and, and just kind of make some comments as we go. Uh, but we're going to talk about persevering faith. How do we survive when something tragic happens? When, when life doesn't turn out the way we really pictured that it would, it would, it would happen, that, that it doesn't happen the way we imagine it. What do we do? How do we live with that? So if you have your cell phone, pull it out, or your Bible, pull it out, follow along in your Bible app, um, and <clears throat> I, since I don't do this for a living, I didn't have, you know, little forms for you to, you know, sentences to fill in words on, so feel free to take notes on your, on your smartphone as well. Don't check your texts, don't make your grocery list for this afternoon, <laughs> Andrea, <clears throat> And, um, but let's, let's dive into this. It's a lot to read through, and we're going to get through it somewhat quickly. Um, and, and I might do this little, hey, so skip ahead to, um, to whatever verse. So, um, and this actually, these two chapters are kind of a hinge in the book of Acts. Up to this point, we've heard how the Spirit came after Christ ascended, and, and how the church started to explode in Jerusalem, and then how it was advanced further on. And we read about Paul's three missionary journeys. And this is the tail end of the third missionary journey, and this is going to, to signify a, a, a change in the flow of Acts, and it's not going to be as much about missionary journeys as what happens after Paul gets arrested. So there I gave away the plot. Paul is getting arrested here. And in fact, as far as anyone knows, he was never a free man after this happened. He was held 
Um, <clears throat> he was held under house arrest. He was eventually transferred to Rome where he spent the rest of his days under arrest. So um, that's, the, that's the tragedy that we're going to be talking, with, talking about and dealing with. So um, <clears throat> into, uh, into the passages. So um, after we had torn ourselves away from them, uh, people that they had been visiting before, and remember this is Dr. Luke who's providing the narrative. So he is there. He's a firsthand witness to all of this stuff. We put out to sea and sailed straight to Kos. The next day we went to Rhodes and there to Patara. Um, uh, we found shipping across to Phoenicia, went on board and set sail. And so he's given us this rundown. Um, <clears throat> I want you to note in verse 4, um, when we uh, stayed with these believers, we sought out the disciples there and stayed with them seven days. Through the Spirit, they urged Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. So there was foreboding. There were people who were worried about what was going to happen to him. And they felt uh, that the Spirit was prompting them to say, hey, Paul, this is a dangerous uh, thing for you to be doing. And, but they kept going. When it was time to leave, we left and continued on our way. All of them including wives and children, accompanied us out of the city. And <clears throat> there on the beach, we knelt to pray. After saying goodbye to each other, we went aboard the ship, and they returned home. We continued our voyage from Tyre and landed at Ptolemais, where we were greeted, where we greeted the brothers and sisters and stayed with them for a day. Leaving the next day, we reached Caesarea and stayed in the house of Philip the Evangelist, one of the seven. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. Stop there for a second. Because I have ADD, I like to do these, I like, I like to notice just little side notes and things like that. So he's got four unmarried daughters who prophesied. Um, <clears throat> as we can best understand the term prophesy within the New Testament, um, that was somebody who spoke truth. Um, <clears throat> and it's the same in the Old Testament. It was somebody who spoke truth into the lies that we are surrounded with. So it's essentially someone who has the gift of preaching. <clears throat> the, the, the office of prophecy is less about knowing who's going to win the Super Bowl next year as it is about being able to speak truth into an, <clears throat> into an amoral society. So here there are four unmarried women who are preachers. That's, um, that's just a by the way, kind of thing. So, so, because <clears throat> that is a constant uh, source of controversy um, within uh, the evangelical community uh, in this day. So, after we'd been there a number of days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Coming out over to us, he took Paul's belt and tied his own hands and feet with it and said, The Holy Spirit says, in this way, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand them over to the Gentiles. So again, the Spirit is prompting someone to tell Paul, if you go to Jerusalem, it's not going to be good for you. <clears throat> when we heard this, verse 12, we and the people there pleaded with Paul not to go to Jerusalem. And then Paul answered, why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I am not, I am <clears throat> not only... I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. When he would not be dissuaded, we gave up and said, the Lord's will be done. <clears throat> After this, we started on our way up to Jerusalem. Some of the <clears throat> disciples from Caesarea accompanied us and brought us to the home of uh, Mnason, 
where we were to stay. He was a man from Cyprus and one of the early disciples. So that's the first chunk, and we get this, we get this image of, you know, they're, they're stopping all these different places on their way back to Jerusalem at the tail end of this third missionary journey, visiting some churches, visiting some believers, um, encouraging them, building them up, but, but steadfastly making their progress back to Jerusalem. And along the way, they are told time and time again, don't do this, you're going to get arrested. Paul is a stubborn sort. <clears throat> and so, when we arrived at Jerusalem, picking it up in verse 17, the brothers and sisters received us warmly. The next day, Paul and the rest of us went to see James, the brother of Jesus, the leader of the church in Jerusalem. <clears throat> and all the elders were present. Paul greeted them and reported in detail what God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. When they heard this, they praised God. Then they said to Paul, you see, brother, how many thousands of Jews have believed, and all of them are zealous for the law. They have been informed that you teach all the Jews who live among the Gentiles to turn away from Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or live according to our customs. What should we do? They will certainly hear that you have come, so do what we tell you. So stop there for a second. The problem that Paul is presented with is that as he has been abroad teaching Gentiles and bringing the word to Gentiles, whenever he would go into a city, the first thing that he would do is he would go to the synagogue there and he would preach to Jewish people. And he would invite them to recognize Christ as their long-awaited Messiah. He'd preach to them and invite them to come to faith. And one of the things about Paul <coughs> is that he, he did not agree with a, a certain group of, of Christians in that day and age. They were called the Judaizers. And the Judaizers believed that if you became a Christian, if you decided to follow the way, then what you would need to do is you would need to be, at whatever age you are, if you're a male, you get circumcised, and, and you would follow all of the Jewish customs and beliefs and so forth. So you would be... Uh, what we call today a completed Jew. Um, uh, and, and, and so Paul is preaching to the Gentiles, inviting them to come to faith, but he also preaches to the Jews first and foremost when he gets into any new city. And as he's doing that, he's telling them, you don't have to keep following the laws. You don't have to keep sacrificing. You don't have to keep the feasts. Because Christ is the Messiah, and he came. And so the entire sacrificial system that we see in the Old Testament has been abolished. It's been fully and finally completely settled with Christ's death and resurrection. But the Judaizers were kind of like the legalists, and, and their belief was, no, if you want to believe in Christ as your Messiah, you first have to become Jewish and go through all the rituals and do all of those things. So there's this huge controversy about that. In Acts 15, they had the Jerusalem Council. They talked about all of that. And, um, and people realized that Paul, after his actions in Jerusalem, before he became a follower of Christ, he was persona non grata there. People hated him because he was like a turncoat. Here you're, uh, you're, <clears throat> you're uh, 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 head and shoulders above all other Jewish people because you are trained theologically. You have all this stuff going for you. Uh, and yet you are now walking away from it. You were persecuting the church, and now you've fallen into their trap. 
that's what Jewish people believe, Jewish people who did not believe in Christ. And so the leaders in Jerusalem are saying, the Jews here have, understand, have, have understood because they have heard from Jews in other parts of the world that you go there and you tell them to turn away from Moses, You're, that, that, there is, that there is a new law and you don't have to circumcise your kids and you don't have to do this and that and the other. So there was a lot of hostility towards Paul. The, the Christian leaders in Jerusalem are saying, so what do we do? Verse 22, what shall we do? They will certainly hear that you have come. So, do what we tell you. <clears throat> there are four men who have with us who have made a vow. Take these men, join in their purification rites, and pay their expenses so that they can have their heads shaved. Then everyone will know that there is no truth in these reports about you, but that you, <clears throat> you yourself are living in obedience to the law. So stop there for a second. So the, the Christian leaders in Jerusalem said, here's, Paul, what we think you need to do in order to rebuild your reputation here. There are these four guys, and they want to have their heads shaved, and we want you to help them do that. Um, <clears throat> so what that is about is there were certain people within Judaism that were called Nazarites. And um, <clears throat> if you're a Nazarite, you did certain rituals, and you, and, and <clears throat> you shaved your head, among other things, and you took special vows um, <clears throat> to be, uh, it was kind of like being a monk um, or a nun, um, but it was, I think it was guys only. Um, <clears throat> and so, so they said, here are these four guys, they're going through the whole Nazarite deal, why don't you just go along with them, and, you know, their last little week of doing this, and if people see you doing that, um, then, then you'll rebuild your reputation here, and people will like you. And, and Paul actually says, okay, I'll go along, I'll do that, as, as weird as it sounds. Um, <clears throat> and <clears throat> to understand that, you need to understand that the, the Jewish leaders, or the Christian leaders within the church in Jerusalem, they weren't as... They weren't as forceful as Paul was in saying, forget the Jewish laws, forget the sacrificial system, forget the need for circumcision. Paul was, Paul was a zealot kind of in the, you don't have to do that. You don't have to live under that legalism. The leaders in, in Jerusalem were, they weren't as, they weren't as forceful as Paul. They weren't as, as zealous about that. And so they kind of, if people still wanted to follow the feasts and all that kind of stuff, they're like, okay, we can do that. So that's why they're saying, hey, here's these four guys. They want to look like Paul Nystrom. So go with them and, and get your head shaved. And um, as for the Gentile believers, we have written to them our decision that they should abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood and the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. So after that Jerusalem council, they wrote to believers elsewhere and said, okay, you're Gentile, you don't have to do the Jewish traditions, but also abstain from food sacrificed to idols, um, don't drink blood, and don't eat the meat from strangled animals. Those were all things that were done in pagan religions. And so don't go and do that stuff. You don't have to do the Jewish stuff, but don't go and do that, that other stuff too. Um, 
So the next day, Paul took the men and purified himself along with them. Then he went to the temple to give notice of the date when the days for purification would end and the offering would be made for each of them. <clears throat> Verse 27, when the seven days were nearly over, some Jews from the province of Asia, so Jews from somewhere else, not Christians from somewhere else, but Jews from somewhere else who had heard, pre who had heard Paul preach and had heard Paul say, you don't have to follow the Jewish law. You don't have to circumcise. They stirred up the whole crowd and seized him, shouting, fellow Israelites, help us. This is the man who teaches everyone everywhere against our people and our law and this place. And besides, he has brought Greeks into the temple and defiled this holy place. Oh, he, he got some Greek people to believe in Jesus, and they came to Jerusalem, and that's a bad thing. We don't want, we don't want Greeks to know Jesus. <clears throat> uh, they had previously seen uh, this guy, uh, the Ephesian, with Paul and assumed that Paul brought him into the temple. So they were incorrect in their assumption. But um, verse 30, the whole city was aroused and the people came running from all directions. Seizing Paul, they dragged him from the temple and immediately the gates were shut. <clears throat> While they were trying to kill him out on the temple steps, going down away from the temple, the news reached the commander of the Roman troops that the whole city of Jerusalem was in an uproar. He at once took some officers and soldiers and ran down to the crowd. When the rioters saw the, the commander and his soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. <clears throat> the Roman garrison, one of the Roman garrisons in Jerusalem, was attached uh, right to the temple. It, it abutted the temple, and they shared a wall. It was the Anto Antonia Fortress. And so these soldiers were, you know, a city block or two away, and, and they heard what was going on. They came out. So the commander <clears throat> came up and arrested him, ordered, to be, ordered him to be bound with two chains. Then he asked who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd shouted one thing and some another. And <clears throat> since the commander couldn't get up, uh, at the truth because of the uproar, he ordered Paul be taken into the barracks, into the Antonio Fortress. <clears throat> when Paul reached the steps, the violence of the mob was so great that he had to be carried by soldiers. A crowd, the crowd that kept shouting, uh, the crowd uh, that kept shouting, get rid of him. Um, uh, verse 37, as the soldiers were about to take Paul into the barracks, he asked the commander, hey, can I say something to you? And the commander stopped because Paul was speaking in Greek. And he said, wow, you speak Greek? He replied, aren't you the Egyptian that started a revolt and led 4,000 terrorists out of the wilderness some time ago? Okay. Josephus, the Jewish historian, talked about that, and that was a real thing that happened, that there was kind of a revolt, um, and <clears throat> 4,000 people uh, fled from, uh, from Egypt, and, uh, <clears throat> but that wasn't Paul. And so he said, I'm a Jew from Tarsus in Sicilia, <clears throat> a citizen of no ordinary city. Dude, I'm from out east. I'm like, I'm important, and I can talk your language. And so after receiving the commander's permission, Paul stood on the steps and motioned to the crowd. He got them to shut up. He said, hang on, let me talk here. When they were all silent, he said to them in Aramaic, which was the common tongue in Jerusalem, he said, brothers and sisters, no, brothers and fathers, listen now to my defense. So he's going to go and offer a defense of himself. <clears throat> 
Paul apparently did not read Dale Carnegie, How to Win Friends and Influence People, okay? Because Paul, who's otherwise a really pretty smart guy, this is what he said. When they heard him speak in Aramaic, they became very quiet. Then Paul said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Sicilia, which is an important city, by the way. That's right. I'm from Tarsus. <clears throat> but I was brought up in this city. I, stuttered on, I studied under Gamaliel and was thoroughly trained <clears throat> in the law of our ancestors. Stop there a second. Gamaliel was the primary theological authority um, in all of Judaism at this time. You could go to different theological schools, but if you went to Gamaliel, you were at the best. And so he studied at the feet of Gamaliel. So I'm Jewish. I'm from a really big, important city. And I, stuttered under, I studied under Gamaliel. And I was thoroughly trained, not just kind of trained. I'm kind of a big deal. <clears throat> I was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. I persecuted the followers of the way to their death, <clears throat> arresting both men and women and throwing them into prison as the high priest and all, of the, and all the council can themselves testify. I even obtained letters from them to their associates in Damascus, and I went there to bring these people as prisoners to Jerusalem to be punished. Stop there a second. <clears throat> Not only was I like kind of a big intellectual dude, but... I also killed people because I could, and they believed in Jesus, and I didn't like that. So I got blood on my hands, you know? I could tell you stories. <clears throat> um, <clears throat> and then he goes into telling the story about his Damascus Road conversion. He's knocked off his horse. We're not going to read through all of it. But he encapsulates what happens when he's knocked off the horse and he actually converses with Christ. And he is called to be, uh, to go back and to, <clears throat> and to serve Christ and to advance the gospel instead of killing followers of Christ. And so we're going to skip ahead. <clears throat> uh, <clears throat> we're going to skip ahead to verse uh, 21. And so he has finished telling the story about Damascus and his conversion and so so he's also kind of like saying I was not I was just you know I was this uber cool Jewish guy who followed the laws knew the laws who enforced the laws I killed people I'm from a really cool place that's where I was born and <clears throat> then the Lord said to me after I was converted go I will send you far away to the Gentiles and so what he says to the audience at that point is but you know what God wanted me to go and preach to the Gentiles instead of you. And because I'll, I'll leave the inference up to you. That's kind of what he says. And so Paul doesn't do, doesn't do himself a whole lot of good in what he has to say. He is, in my mind, and we don't get a whole lot of textual hints at this, but in my mind, he was purposely inflaming the crowd. So we see in the next verse, the crowd listened to Paul until he said this. Then they raised their voices and shouted, rid the earth of him, he is not fit to live. So at one point they wanted to beat him, now they want him dead. As they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the commander ordered that Paul be taken into the barracks. 
He directed that he be flogged and interrogated in order to find out why the people were shouting at him like this. And in the next verses, what we find out is Paul informs the commander that he is a Roman citizen. A Roman citizen may not be flogged without being found guilty. The Roman soldiers in Jerusalem, if they needed to enforce the laws or, or put down an uprising of any kind, they could indiscriminately drag people into the barracks and flog them. And when you got flogged, your, <coughs> your back and your rear end and your legs, the back part of your legs, were essentially turned into ground hamburger because it was a very, very vicious thing to be flogged in that manner. And they could do it with impunity to non-Roman citizens. But Paul, being a lawyer and knowing his rights, said, you can't touch me, and I appeal to Rome. So take me away. And that's essentially how this ends. This account marks the time, marks the, the exact moment where Paul could look and say, I went from a free man to a captive. And the rest of his days were spent in jail. I'm guessing that Paul's parents probably didn't, you know, ever sit there and say, oh, when Paul grows up, he's going to get thrown in prison for the rest of his life. And that's what we're, you know, we're looking forward to that. We're going to be excited about that. <clears throat> It just doesn't work out the way he thought. And to a lot of people at that time, you saw the people beforehand who were begging him not to go. Those people all were looking at this, or when they heard news of it, they were saddened. They thought, this is a tragedy. Paul has been arrested. He's eventually set to, sent to Caesarea, um, <clears throat> and he's put on three different trials there. And then he eventually is sent to Rome. <clears throat> so this is a tragedy in a lot of people's eyes. Paul didn't think it was a tragedy. <clears throat> I think he was. I think he. Uh, I think he insulted the crowd so that he would ensure that he gets arrested, because he wanted to go to Rome and he wanted to preach to the Gentiles in Rome. That's what he felt the the Spirit was calling him to, and so that's why he did it. But we're going to use this entire story, this entire narrative, because I want to delve into, you know, the concept of what happens when tragedy strikes. Because I can tell you there were a ton of people who thought that this was a tragedy, that this was going to spell the end of all of Paul's earthly ministry. It was over and done with now. But we know that Paul went on to, to write all of the prison letters he wrote Philippians. He wrote, um, I haven't looked it up recently, but he wrote a number of different um, uh, letters uh, while he was uh, in, in captivity, and he carried on a very effective ministry. And he preached to people, uh, his guards, and so forth. And so the word continued to spread. It was different than what anyone imagined, but the word continued to spread. So I want to just kind of look at um, a couple concepts about how do we handle, how do we persevere through tragedy? How do we perse persevere through, through heartache, through, 
the things that the things that you look back over the course of your life and say that was that was a really dark place for us. <clears throat> and I've got four different things that I want to that I want to offer. Um, first of all, is this: um, life will never turn out exactly like we expected. We all kind of think about what do I want to do when I grow up? Or now that I'm allegedly grown up, uh, <clears throat> do I want to stay in this career? Am I satisfied here? Do I want to do something else? Uh, are we going to have kids or aren't we? Am I going to be married or am I not? <clears throat> Will our kids end up following Jesus? Will our kids have good marriages? Will, will we be able to defeat this cancer diagnosis? Will we be able to survive the loss of our child? Will I be able to survive the end of my marriage? Will I survive if my husband dies of cancer? How can I survive if my son takes his life? None of us really look and anticipate those kind of things because we don't believe that they'll happen to us. We know they happen to somebody, but not, not necessarily us. <clears throat> My wife hates it when I talk about this, but I am a Bruce Springsteen fan. And <clears throat> there's a movie coming out next Friday called Blinded by the Light, and it's the story of a, of a kid who learns about Bruce Springsteen and then lives in India and then comes to the U.S. and because he wants to see the guy that writes these lyrics that are so meaningful to him. Um, we have tickets for a showing, a special preview showing tomorrow night. <laughs> and my wife's actually going to go with me. So um, whenever I go to a Bruce Springsteen concert, I imagine, you know, what is he going to open with? And is he going to play Thunder Road? Is he going to play No Surrender? Is he going to play, you know, when will he play Born to Run? Not will he, but, you know, is it going to be in the encore or whatever? And so I have these, I have, you know, I envision what it's going to be like. And it's always different than what I think. Same thing is true with life. We envision what's going to happen. And usually we don't envision bad things happening. But the reality is bad things will happen. And there, there will be times in our lives where we are walking through literal tragedy. And we didn't see that coming. When, I'm, when I marry a couple and I do premarital counseling and all that kind of stuff, I usually tell them just before the rehearsal, I say, so this is what's going to happen. You guys are going to have a blast. It's going to go by way too quickly. But <clears throat> something will go wrong almost always happens that something goes wrong. And I said, when something goes wrong, all you really need to do is say, oh, so that's what was going to go wrong. And that's going to be the story we tell, you know, 40 years from now about you know, the caterer dropped the cake. My gosh, that was crazy, you know. And at the moment, it, it's like the worst thing that could happen. <clears throat> but we face much worse things, and I've already talked about it, cancer, divorce, um, uh, 
sexual molestation or, or abuse or emotional abuse or um, whatever else. Those things happen, and we don't anticipate that they will. We never necessarily see it coming. So life doesn't turn out exactly like we imagine. We will all experience tragedy and loss. That's the second thing. <clears throat> and the third thing is this, is <clears throat> the real living God will bring us through. The real living God will bring us through. I said the real living God will bring us through, and I said that with, with kind of specific intent because there are people who their, their picture of God in their cartoon bubble is God is a God who wants to bless me, and if I have enough faith and if I serve and I'm always smiling, then God will bless me, and I'll make a lot of money, and I'll get to drive a BMW. And I just need to claim his promises that he wants to bless me. And that is, that is a very small picture of a very small God. That God who wants to bless you, and that's what the entire essence of your faith is, that God will not get you through when your 22-year-old son wraps that BMW around a telephone pole. That God will not get you through that. Because if you think, all I have to do is all the right stuff and then God will bless me, then when that BMW hits that telephone pole, instead of saying, God, can you get me through this? I am devastated. You look at yourself and you say, I must not have had enough faith. I, I, I must not have, I, God is wanting to not bless me for some reason. And, and that God will not sustain you through tragedy. We need to understand that God is a God who, even though, even though it's not his, his original intent, but because there is sin in this world, there is disease in this world, um, <clears throat> divorce happens and suicide happens and <clears throat> Sexual abuse happens, and addiction happens, and all of these things happen. It's not necessarily, it's, it's, it's not him doing it. It's a result of sin. But the real living God, if we know him, he will sustain us through that. And he'll use it for his glory. We talked about Paul getting arrested. I want to talk really quickly about another guy who got arrested. This was Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist. Mark 1, verse 14. Yes, I'm excited for <laughs> John the Baptist. Um, Mark 1, uh, 14. Uh, it's, it's a short verse. And it's one of those verses that if you're reading Mark, you know, it's the first chapter, and so you're just kind of reading through, and you're like, oh, I'm going to read Mark. It's the shortest gospel. I can read this in like a week. Um, <clears throat> so you start reading, and you go through um, 
Jesus' calling into ministry, and you go through the uh, baptizing and testing in the desert, and then that's done. And then verse 14, after John was put in prison, Jesus went to Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. See anything wrong with that? After John was put in prison in Jerusalem, Jesus goes to Galilee. He walks 60 miles away so that he can start preaching the good news. And John never gets out of prison. And in a few years, he has his head chopped off. But in the intervening time, John got some of his followers to say, to go to Jesus and say, are you really the one? Because I'm here in jail, and this ain't fun. And I'm starting to doubt. And, but Jesus went to Galilee. He didn't, he didn't, like, get John out on bail. He didn't call Johnny Cochran. He didn't, you know, he didn't do anything like that. He just left John in jail. God sometimes allows stuff like that to happen. And it's hard. But when we have the big picture of God, when we know the real living God, he can sustain us. You guys know what the, the most frequent promise in Scripture is? All right now, hold on the most frequent commandment in Scripture. Anyone know? Don't be afraid. Fear not. That is the most frequent commandment in Scripture. And the most frequent promise is the flip side of the coin. Fear not because I am with you. It is all over Scripture. It's head and shoulders above any other kind of commandment or promise. Don't be scared because I am with you. When we know that God, when we know that God who is God in heaven above, but also the God who is with us, then we can make it through those tragedies. My friend whose son took his life, she texted me and she said, the only thing that's getting us through this is scripture. The only thing that is getting us through this is that we can go and we can read God's heart as poured out for all of us. And we can hear him say, do not fear, for I am with you. <clears throat> the last thing is this. When... <laughs> When we go through those tragic times and we allow the real living God to sustain us and to minister to us and to get us through that, we will grow. We're going to become more Christ-like. We're going to become uh, persons of greater faith than we already were because we will see his provision and we will see how he brought us through that. Horatio Spafford, the guy that we started with. A month or two after his four daughters died, he got another ship and he went 
to Europe to join his wife, to grieve with her. And when he was in that ship, as they neared the spot where, where the first ship went down, does anyone know what he wrote? It is well. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, you have taught me to, to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. What, what a profound thing. He's able to tell the story that, you know, when, when peace like a river you know, a, a gentle brook, when that, is, when that is what my life is like, or when sorrows like sea billows are rolling. And he's writing this, you know, within miles of the spot where his four children were taken from him. And he's able to write these lyrics and to pour his heart out and to say, no matter what comes, God, you are the God who sustains, you are the God who is in control, you are the God who, who loves even if we've tried for 10 years and we can't have a baby, even if we uh, uh, <clears throat> watch a, a child of ours go through a horrible divorce, even when we see uh, a spouse of ours going through addictions, God, I know that you are good, and I know that it is well in my soul because I am yours and you are mine. And I need not fear because you are with me. So what looked to the disciples, to the other disciples, to the other followers of Christ, what looked like disaster wasn't. And when we face something that looks like disaster to us, it isn't. Because he is in control. And we can raise a hallelujah. And through the midst of that, we can come out on the other side. Um, I'll just stand and the band can come up. We'll pray. <clears throat> Father, I want to thank you for being a God who is in the trenches with us, who's not just a God off in heaven somewhere, watching over us, uh, checking to see who's naughty and nice. <laughs> but you are instead a God who reigns supreme in heaven and on earth. And you are a God who is with us. Doesn't just watch over us, but through your spirit, you are with us and you dwell in us. And you bring us through tragedy. And you bring us through heartache. And you bring us through whatever we face. God, we thank you for that. And I pray that you will give us all a bigger picture, a bigger vision of who you are. Take those cartoon bubbles of ours and just explode them so they're gigantic and we can see that the God we serve is beyond our comprehension in mercy and in grace and in comfort and peace. We ask these things in Christ's name.
Amen.